Hello, my name is Drew Albers. And I'm Katie Johnson. And we want to welcome you to the Peeling Back podcast. Our mission in this podcast is to share the many narratives that drive conflicts and dictate interstate dynamics in the Middle East and North Africa region. Each episode, we will either bring on a guest to provide analysis on one of the conflicts, or Katie and I will choose a current event to discuss. While we are a University of Wyoming-sponsored podcast, the views and ideas shared on this podcast do not necessarily align and should not be viewed as representing the position of the entire university. Our goal is not to pick a side in these counteracting narratives, but to provide a platform for all voices involved. Dr. Daniel Varenfinnig has worked in global education for over a decade. Born in Germany, he participated in many international educational programs during his youth and undergraduate education, allowing him to live in and experience firsthand conflict-affected areas in the Middle East, Kosovo, Northern Ireland, and the U.S., where he worked as a U.S. congressional intern during 9-11. In 2003, he permanently moved to the United States and received his Ph.D. in political science and international relations from the University of California, Irvine. During his graduate studies, he founded and became the inaugural executive director of the Olive Tree Initiative, an award-winning experiential learning program based in the University of California system and housed at UC Irvine. He also created and taught in the Certificate Program in Conflict Analysis and Resolution and served as the Vice Chair of the Chancellor's Advisory Council on Campus Climate, Culture, and Inclusion at the University of California, Irvine. In his doctoral work, Dr. Daniel Varenfinnig studied Israel-Palestine and Northern Ireland comparatively in the context of citizen involvement in the peace process. In the last 15 years, he has traveled to the Middle East over 25 times, and dozens of times to Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, Colombia, and Northern Ireland, mostly bringing groups of students and community members with him on educational travel. Today, we are joined by Daniel Varenfenig, uh, and we will be discussing uh, kind of the importance of narratives in many of these Middle East conflicts. Um, Daniel, you spent a lot of your life uh, studying this. Um, so to start, we kind of just wanted to, very basic, what do you think the importance of understanding counteracting narratives in a conflict is to understanding the narrative as a whole, or understanding the conflict as a whole, rather? First of all, thank you for having me on this uh, incredible, exciting podcast. And I think, uh, you know, discussing conflicts and what they mean is is, first of all, very, very important, because I think Today, in particular, if we want to look at this pluralistic project of living in a society with very different opinions and feelings and we're getting really better in expressing those, I think we have really to learn how to live with conflicting, what I call conflicting narratives or conflicting opinions and to do this together. And when we think about conflict, we you know, easily think about the Middle East and all of that, but I think increasingly we understand that you know, those, you know, conflicts is also something that happens in our own society. So I got into all of this, you know, many, many years ago from my upbringing, you know, in, in Europe and, and traveling to the Middle East. I'm German, spending a lot of time, especially in Israel and the Palestinian territories, Israel, Palestine, to really kind of involve myself on the German history and all of that. And, and quickly, you know, come to the point of why it is important to look 
at history, at current events, um, not so much from a framework of there's one true key narrative or one truth, but understanding that looking at it from a narrative perspective is more useful. What I'm trying to say is that I'm believing that there's truth, I believe that there are facts, but very often or for most of the time in a conflict or in most situation, the ways how these facts and truth are interpreted, are understood, are being recited, are kind of recorded in, in the history of, of, of a personal, you know, of a personal narrative or of a you know, collective narrative is really what makes people act, what makes people move, you know, to move and also what allows people to change. So in that sense, when I think about narratives or conflict, I say narratives are more important than facts. Not that these have to be in conflict with each other, but you can have even one certain sets of facts and two different narratives of how these facts are interpreted. Even if people even agree on the facts like numbers, times, what happened, uh, the way it is interpreted, is it a rightful thing, is it a wrong thing, you know, is really, really different. So I think looking at the narratives as a core understanding of conflict and understanding where people are coming from, what they're believing and what makes them work, I think is really key in ways of thinking of if there's any ways to move forward and coming, is there any way to have these narratives um, agree, you know, is there any ways of have these narratives lived side by side and still have an ability to move forward? Or is having these narratives battling about a certain truth or mobilizing people in different ways ultimately end up to make it really hard for people or groups to live together? Yeah, and I think that you bring up a very interesting point um, about how the narratives can kind of take the place of objective truth. Um, and especially in countries um, where media is very censored, you're only hearing one side's media argument. Um, can you talk a little bit about how in that environment where there's only one side's truth being uh, shared in the media at large, how the narratives can then take the place of objective truth and try to battle against that? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, I think it's media plays a very important role. Education plays a role. I think especially the, the, the longer the time period between an, something happening, uh, you know, events, historic events, uh, historic rights, wrongs, uh, developments to the actual date of, of when you talk about them, the, the longer there's a distance, there is the danger or that, you know, there's the reality of that narratives changes, you know, it changes because they're recorded, they're re-recorded, they're reported in different ways. Um, and a lot of, you know, especially Middle Eastern conflicts where um, history is still being preserved in a, in a narrative way, meaning, you know, parents tell their kids, generations tell other generations. That's the way how you record history. It's an oral history for the most part. It's not like there is an accurate or like, you know, a, a kind of life recording of events that exist from 100 years ago. So a lot of the current events we're looking at and people take motivation from or decide, you know, whose land is that or who's right about these issues are, are based on, on a very strong oral history, meaning there's I mean, sometimes you have pictures or you have some other forms of kind of recording of that. But very often it's just like the things that have been told about that. And these oral histories we know are changing. And again, it doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them kind of sometimes more narrow or more focused on certain elements than maybe on the complexity or the contextualization and that what they happened. And I think media or restrained media in a way when there was not a lot of record, if there was not like 10 newspapers recording at the same event and you have these 10 newspapers of the time 
highlighting different elements of that event at the time and you only have one reporting and that that being kind of being filtered or manipulated in a way obviously kind of makes it more difficult to find the complexity that's sometimes important and often you know very helpful to unpack what really happens so i think restricting not just so you know restricting media but also having limited forms of narrative recording or recorded history in what form soever really makes it hard to unpack or challenge history in certain ways because then it's kind of speculation of what you think should have happened versus having like data on that so obviously if you come to 2022 with all the challenges today you have more recording you know people do record on their whatever digital devices you have different media you have pictures and i think that in some way provides you with multiple kind of points of of competing narratives and still if you still see how overarching people try to frame certain events or try to discourage certain things despite having all of that different you know kind of points of recording history so despite all of that that we should today have more um you know more pluralistic understanding of events we're still kind of getting narrowed down in what is recorded and then when it comes to a conflict you know there's often the issue of access uh, you know, you only have, you know, certain people, you know, and you also know that certain videos can be manipulated and then news can be manipulated in, in, in different ways. But despite all of that, I mean, we have also seen you can have even the perfectly visual recording and narratives and people still will write whatever they think it's right. And, you know, that there's still like kind of the master narrative that exists that you force a lot of these current events into that. And again, I'm agreeing that having a restricted media not so much kind of ability to record things does make it more complicated to explore the different narratives or to know who's you know who, who have the ability to to you know experience that and then for that reason i'm a big believer in this what you know we i would call experiential learning where you actually go and meet with people where, where your contact point of of learning about history and what's going on is not so much just the one and two media sets but it is actually the people and the way they experience it, that the way they talk about it to each other, they, the, the way the history and events is recorded in their kind of communal, um, societal narrative and is, 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 is re-recorded there. And that, that does matter a lot more and is sometimes very different from the general media perception, depending on where you are in the world, that you will kind of, uh, you know, come, come across. Yeah, I, so I feel for my, me personally, like having had the opportunity, which is obviously a big privilege of, of growing up in a context that I could travel, that I was allowed to, to leave, to go to different places and experience different contexts in our context and, and, and also have the opportunity of not you know, traveling and seeing things, but interacting with people and, and, and acting on and spaces that are very different. So some of my early experience have been in the Middle East, being as a young German meeting people who were you know affected by the holocaust by the shoah uh and 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 you know having those very heartfelt difficult conversation like you know it's very differently meeting somebody who was in a concentration camp and had like the number tattooed on their arm than hearing about history and at the same time you know we're able to meet palestinians you know who who had lost their you know homes and you know and and, and their history of, of 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 being refugees and like listening to them at the right time so having had the opportunity and then seeing those, you know, Palestinian Israelis in this early stage having dialogues with each other, like not just seeing things, but seeing other people engaging 
in kind of these difficult conversation and narrative exchanges of how they kind of remember history and what they want and where they're going has been you know incredibly influential for my own life of what's possible what can be done how despite maybe have not the perfect agreement about history how can you move forward and what's possible so i think experiences um in that sense have been really influential in my life of of expanding my horizon of belief what i think is possible and what engagement dialogue which is a very dangerous word today because people have very assumption what dialogue means but this idea of people coming together and sharing heartfelt history listening to each other really empathizing uh, looking into you know the, their own history from another perspective what that can actually do and has done historically so that has been a big drive in my personal life and then a professional life later on kind of you know being um, a professor in the university for many many years and and coming to this point of uh, reporting history or, or sharing about historical events or like very difficult issues seeing the limitation and and that's not meant that academia is limiting it's just like there's limitations even if you like assign different books and different perspectives on that that doesn't give you even that full complexity of understanding like being at the place and meeting the people and you know you know kind of having the full sense you know sensory experience of sitting breathing learning and reading and you know contextualizing what is even being said or the differences in that context so i think um, understanding really that learning and talking or teaching about conflict really has to happen in this more complex way of experiential learning. Yeah, and Katie and I are both alumni of your experiential learning program um, to Israel. Um, and going on that uh, idea of, you know, that dialogue between the two sides is so important, especially in a conflict-driven society that is maybe on the way out, like you can see in Northern Ireland, which you have a lot of experience um, in learning about. Um, and I guess my question would be, how or in what ways can you see similarities of the reconciliation process? I know that that's kind of like a vague word, but the reconciliation process in Northern Ireland and how you see the future of the Israeli-Palestinian going conflict going, if you see any similarities there or just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, you know, that, a lot to be said that it's probably much bigger than this this podcast or the time you have together today. Um, Definitely, In a short way, my own PhD work was really on comparing Israel-Palestine and Northern Ireland. Uh, in the context on citizen um, dialogue, what I call it, or, or you know, citizen involvement in the peace process, how they're pushed forward toward uh, a peaceful resolution, which, you know, historically in the 90s, you had the Oslo peace process in the, you know, Israeli-Palestinian context, and you had the, you know, um, Good Friday, uh, you know, process agreement, you know, in the in the Northern Ireland and context. And they happened at roughly the same time. And it's similar to... I would say a similar motion that people had tried the military solution in both conflicts. People have tried to use, you know, kind of the, the violent military ways of getting rid of one side or subjugating one side into what they wanted to do. And I think it came to a, a point where I think people were, you know, I mean, besides the suffering that brings, but, but also didn't feel like that that was a solution or moved, you know, their political means forward and wanted to try the really negotiation part and that. Negotiation is not obviously when you kind of societies in conflict cannot only happen 
on, on the political side, but has to be supported by certain trust by the people. And so having that kind of part to it, I think there's a lot of similarities that brought to it. So a lot of uh, big, you know, like a lot, many pages been written, you know, uh, why it failed ultimately. And, you know, there are a lot of complicated, you know, occasions in Israel, Palestine versus Northern Ireland. However, I think people are always easy to look history or, as you talked earlier, you know, about narratives or kind of comparing history from only today or rewrite that history. And I think when you look into the articles and news of the 90s, people actually believed Israel-Palestine would be easier to be solved and would be now in a peace process than Northern Ireland is today. So today, obviously, it feels like completely, you know, I mean, even imagining or comparing those two feels completely un unjustified. But when you look at that time, it felt like Northern Ireland was further away from being solved, given their historic and, you know, difficulties to get to the, to the table than Israel-Palestine, where there was, you know, an, an incredible support by the population and a general will and, you know, the world united to, you know, bring, bring the sides together. So I, what I'm trying to say is history moves in different places, but I, 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 you know, believe if, if, if people don't still believe, which I hope fewer and fewer do, that uh, in this, those two conflicts that you mentioned, Andrew, that the people, that one side will disappear or that one side, for whatever reason, will give up their rights or their freedoms or their ambitions or their kind of, you know, sense of self-determination and, 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 and kind of, you know, in, in some way, uh, you know, self-respect, then you have to deal with each other. And I think excluding or dealing with each other uh, means that you have to take into account what your fears what your hopes and what your needs are of the other side in, in, in relation to your own hopes, needs and where things are. So I think dialogue, as much as it's been seen as kind of this PC kind of giving up your rights, is I think the basic understanding of where is the other side coming from. And I think that's the case in Northern Ireland, as it is in Israel-Palestine, that you really don't will feel that sense of peace and freedom and ability to build your own life and your future for who for you and your family don't have a certain sense that the needs immediately or we you now in, in some way of the other side are met that that they can actually live you know side by side with you if this ends up to be a very peaceful integrated society northern ireland is still struggling with that is a big question but even to the basic ideas of living side by side without the fear of the other you know, overcoming or wanting you or like kicking you out or, you know, kind of wanting something, you know, destroying your life, uh, you know, or your, your quality of life is, I think, the dialogue or sitting with each other, not just the leadership, but societies and, and developing certain kind of trust. I think there's, I, I've not seen, read, studied anything that can move past that. And I'm not advocating here for a certain kind of solution, what that is, but I'm just trying to highlight that that this idea that you can make those processes happen without dialogue, without coming together, I think is not something that is supported in any historic way that ever happened anywhere. So this is just our last question we have for you, Daniel, just because we don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, with all of the research and the time that you've spent in these two places, do you see, what, what is the trajectory you see? Are you still hopeful after 20 years of visiting Israel-Palestine, that that integration and that dialogue will open up and continue and be better? Or has this hardened you? I mean, it's it, it's obviously a hard place to be because in the last 
20 years that I've been working on that, the bigger political context has developed. And now I'm speaking about Israel-Palestine, not in the direction of more, you know, hope in that sense. However, baseline coming back, I still believe those the people there have a deeper sense of understanding that they have to figure out how to live with the other side. I think, you know, how that will develop, um, I don't know, but that basic understanding gives me hope that they have some, you know, something to figure out. I, even, you know, as politics changed, both sides have in, in, their, in their big kind of assumptions and where they are, are not operating from the zero sum kind of I'll take it all mentality anymore. There's a, you know, certainly an understanding that the other side will exist and be there, you know, and people have their ideas and plans how to manage that and what that means for the future. And there's a lot of things in there, you know, you can disagree and agree with. But I think there's a deep understanding that nobody's going to leave. Israelis are not going to leave. Palestinians are not going to leave. So that sounds very um, cynical, but it's not so much for me as a hope. It's just dialogue in some way, what I call dialogue, is a necessity that's going to happen. And in my personal engagement with people there, the resilience of people on the ground, their you know, core understanding that that's necessary to talk with and reach out to the other side is still something that, that you know, inspires me because I think it is something that, they, it's not like an option you know, for them to do it or not. I think it is in the core, they have to, and now I'm speaking a little bit more on the Palestinian side, especially Palestinians, I think, get this deep sense that they have to figure out to talk to, you know, Israelis who are in the stronger position and, you know, it kind of their, you know, their decisions make up a lot of determination of their lives and where things are. So I think there is this, in this necessity, um, I think there's hope is a very tough word, but I think there is, there is definitely a future of more and more conversations still to happen in different forms and, and people finding ways to kind of think through that and where that is. I think from a big picture, um, the more I think people get chances to have these meaningful conversations also internally in the society. I mean, Israeli society, Palestinian society is very complex. There's a lot of internal divisions, you know, and developments, you know, in, in a very positive way. People are also finding more voices. You know, we have very complex, you know, if it's religious and ethnic, if it's, you know, kind of based on, on norms, tradition, social gender, you name it. There's, I think, a lot of kind of a, a more, more pluralistic societies that's becoming stronger also as civil societies expressing differences. So I, my hope is also that maybe in the, in the, in the short term, that people internally in their very divided and pluralistic societies are learning more having this difficult conversation and making arrangements and adjusting their own lifestyle towards other people's living with them. You know, if it's in Israel, if it's a very divided society and, you know, in terms of people being very religious, you know, with a lot of uh, contextualization, what that means, you know, to people very secular, you know, Palestinian society, there's definitely, you know, big generational changes, there's, you know, changes in, in, in a growing civil society with different needs and wants, that I hope that these internal, what I call positive frictions, allow people also to learn to kind of compromise and to kind of have these conversation and to, you know, that are sometimes difficult, that maybe then allow them more and more to um, go back, you know, into the conversation with each other, ultimately the place when that can happen. So I think the future of hope of, you know, hope in quotation dialogue lies right now in the internal capacity building and conversation of societies and really strengthen that and really figure out their lives. And then ultimately, I think in the necessity in talking with each other that, again, I don't know if I'm hopeful, I'm just looking at it from a more like it's a necessity if that 
ever you know will be kind of go to a place what i call i think what should be the aim of mutual flourishing meaning that everybody in this region flourishes together and some obviously have to flourish more than others it's not an equal flourishing but it's a mutual flourishing i think we have to approach it in a way that everybody there should flourish in one way or the other um, and that means different things but if that should be achieved the conversation with each other and what that means to flourish and how that can happen not for the cost of the other is very very important all right thank you so much daniel thank you for coming on our podcast being our first guest you were amazing this conversation was also amazing 